Hello, celestial citizens. I'm Britt Duffy Adkins, and welcome to Continuum. The universe is expanding, and so is the space industry. With all the new developments, announcements, and launches, it can be a lot to keep up with. So we're here to help. Continuum is a news outlet that's making space news relevant for the next generation and boldly challenging the status quo. Whether it's new discoveries and developments in technology or how what we're doing in space affects us here on Earth, we'll cover it all. You can find our stories on our website, continuum-hq.com, and in our newsletter, which comes out every other week. Not only does our newsletter include links to our original features, but it also contains a rundown of some of the top headlines from the week, as well as recommended space reads from around the web. Do yourself a favor and subscribe on Substack if you haven't already. And becoming a paid subscriber is even better. You'll not only be supporting a great team of space content creators, but also gaining access to Continuum exclusives like this podcast. You can find links to our website and how to subscribe to our newsletter in the episode description. So whether you're a space enthusiast or just starting to look up at the stars, we'll take the highlights from the week and share them for you here. We are the outlet providing space news for everyone. So without further ado, here's Continuum. Today, we are joined by Hunter Williams. Hunter is the Technology Development Manager at Honeybee Robotics. His focus is on lunar space resource utilization technology, including oxygen production, water harvesting, and lunar polar electrical power. He is a former NASA research fellow in solar regolith melting technology and a site expert in additive manufacturing at Lockheed Martin Space Systems at Cape Canaveral, Florida. Hunter is pursuing a PhD in space resources from the Colorado School of Mines, which is actually where we originally met as grad students. Also, a shout out to Colorado School of Mines Space Resources Program for sponsoring Celestial Citizen and Continuum this year. Hunter is also an alum of Celestial Citizen Podcast, where we discussed plans for a lunar electrical grid in season three, and this is freely available across all streaming platforms. So go ahead and check it out. Hunter, thanks so much for being here. Hey, Britt. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to talk about the news of the day. There's a lot to cover. For folks listening now, Hunter and I actually kind of went through and picked out some of our favorite stories from the week, or I say favorite, some of them were kind of doom and gloom. So I don't know if they're like my favorite, but I feel like we should talk about them. But there's a lot that we could have covered. So if you want the full rundown, definitely check out Continuum this week. But let's see, let's get started here. One of the top headlines was the mysterious Russian satellite that broke up in Earth's orbit. And in particular, I think that this is obviously very relevant to cover, not only from an orbital debris standpoint, but one of the things in reading this announcement that sort of really struck me was the fact that they said that based on where this satellite broke apart in orbit, it actually could take, I think it was upwards of 100 years to eventually deorbit and come back down to Earth, which 
to me is baffling. I mean, that just feels very terrible. So Hunter, what are your thoughts on this story? It's really interesting how orbit affects how long it takes something to get back down and the speeds that everything's flying around at. One of the funniest things to me to think about is in WALL-E, when they're kind of breaking through the orbital debris cloud. Which I should say I've never seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah you gotta see it's it. a big point of contention between bailey burns and i who if people don't know bailey burns she also is a colorado school of mines alum works at blue origin and is very often on the celestial citizen youtube channel but yes we have talked about this a lot it's weird that i haven't seen wally but so it is i'm gonna slip a copy to your husband and make sure that you guys watch it sometimes <laughs> <laughs> For the record, he also thinks it's odd. Yeah, but the reason I mentioned it is as they're kind of going through the debris cloud, it looks like the debris cloud is static, but that's not how it is. It's flying around the earth super fast. And when we talk about like deorbiting debris or dealing with it, it's not like you can just take a big old net and trawl for debris. You have to match its speed and take it down carefully. So a lot of times these companies that are coming out right now, they're looking at debris mitigation or debris removal or whatever, really talking about pretty big pieces, deorbiting that are easily trackable. A lot of these small pieces, there's really not a lot that is being done right now for it. I have a job that allows me to sit around and think of ideas. And so that's a pretty even mix of really good and really bad ideas that I come up with on a daily basis. One of the bad ideas that I had a little while ago was, what if we just put like a really big block of aluminum up there and went backwards and kind of slammed some of this debris into it? We did some back of the envelope calculations and even a very small, like I'm talking a few centimeters across piece of debris would obliterate, even if you put like a Falcon 9 and filled the entire payload bay, the maximum mass of aluminum and just trawled that around, it would immediately be blown apart, right? You literally can't do it. So yeah, when we talk about international law on space debris mitigation and the control of how much we create, it's really like a thing that affects everybody. That's wild that you kind of did that back of the envelope math and found that it would just obliterate it. But it doesn't necessarily surprise me. The interesting thing about this is that This breakup event, they're saying it caused 85 pieces of trackable debris. So again, to your point, who knows what's untrackable there. But also for people that are maybe less aware of the current stats on this, according to ESA, there are 36,500 pieces of space junk that are at least four inches wide that are currently around our planet. I mean, over 36,000. That is wild to me. And I feel like because it's one of those things where unfortunately people, they don't necessarily see it, they aren't concerned about it. But I feel like people should be very concerned about this, of course, because not only is it dangerous, but it also could preclude our ability from being able to access space. Now, the other thing, though, is that ESA has said that there could be more than 130 million objects that are at least a millimeter across. So the smaller and smaller you get, these numbers go up and up. But what's also interesting about this story When the 18th Space Defense Squadron announced this, they didn't really speculate on the cause of the breakup. So we're not really sure why the breakup of the satellite took place. And then the other thing that was kind of odd about this was that Cosmos 2499 wasn't actually officially on the launch manifest. And so U.S. satellite trackers were looking at the catalog and saw that it was initially cataloged as a piece of debris called Object E, But then 
the debris began making maneuvers and started closing in on a rocket upper stage. So it's definitely some strange stuff going on. I think that's fair to say. What's your take on that? My take on that is Russia is very likely doing undercover orbital maneuvers and testing technology that it's just not talking about. Now, we do that too. Honestly, any spacefaring nation does a certain amount of it. But the problem with Russia is that they're doing it in a really strangely brazen and impactful way. It's causing a lot of problems just out in the open. And what I've kind of come to believe about this is that because they're in Russia's government is really in crisis quite a bit right now. I think that the stress level and the propensity for making mistakes and making kind of off decisions has gone through the roof right now. Space is really hard. Some of the things we're going to talk about today, the key theme could be space is hard, right? <laughs> yes, I agree with that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're making some decisions about like, let's say, for example, what they were trying out, I can think of a few things that would cause a certain amount of debris as they are moving a classified satellite towards a rocket body. They may be trying to do some deorbital technology testing if they were using impactors or trying to use like anything that would be launched and then attached to the rocket body. These kind of operations are brand new. Like there has not been very much of this kind of operation in the history of spaceflight. Like we've used tethers, but connecting one moving body to another on orbit is actually really complicated. So even if they were not doing anything nefarious like testing explosions or like anti-satellite technology that they tested a little while ago, just doing something new and not having prepared well enough could absolutely be the reason that they are generating a lot of debris right now. The kind of terrifying thing about space is that, in my opinion, space is a commons. It's a global commons. And so if you have people that are taking actions that don't necessarily match the hopes and the goals and aspirations that others might have for what this global commons might be and remain, then you get into these situations where unfortunately, few bad actors can really ruin it. And I say that understanding and acknowledging full well that the US has put up a lot of debris as well. So, you know, I mean, we're talking about Russia here, but really there's a lot of people who are very much to blame for the current orbital environment. Yeah. One last thing I would say is that it's always easier to not create debris than it is to mitigate it after the fact. Mm. So it's funny because that's the way it is with all particulate, even on Earth. I've worked in a nanoparticle lab before, and it's like 100 times better to just not generate in the lab setting than it is to have to use PPE to mitigate mm. it. So these lessons are not new. We've known how to not create dust on Earth for a long time. I think that spacefaring nations simply need to Keep mm -hmm. that in mind. That we, yep. <laughs> we are not going to be able to solve this problem by fixing it later. We can only solve it by not creating it in the first place. Yeah. No, I think that's like a really great point. And I want to backtrack because I think that that is actually like the critical point that I hope people take away from all these stories that cover these topics is that anything that we do in space, it's not like there's some cleanup. And of course, we're having all sorts of issues with oil spills or in Ohio, you know, of course, the train derailment, which is eerily similar to the plot of that movie that I can't remember the name of right now. White noise. White noise. Yeah. I watched that and that movie totally freaked me out. And then it like has now happened in real life and I'm even more freaked out about it. In general, for people who are the least bit anxious, 
the last like news cycle of this week has been a little rough, you know, between that. And I know later we're going to be talking about some, you know, potential unidentified flying objects out there. It's like, what is going on right now? But no, back to your point, which is that people really need to understand that in space, especially, I mean, we learn this on Earth, it's almost impossible to clean up any sort of pollution or mess that we create. But in space, I mean, it's it's down near almost impossible, at least with the technologies available today. So we need to figure this out and soon. In terms of other things falling from the sky, this didn't take over 100 years like the Russian debris. Instead, a dramatic fireball lit up the European skies just hours after it was discovered. So I think that's kind of the headline for me on this one is that this small asteroid was really only observed just before it flew over Europe. And if you see the footage of it, it's pretty wild. Like If you were on the ground watching this, I mean, that would be quite the sight to see, but also a little bit terrifying. I don't know that there's much to say on this other than, you know, really hoping that some of the kids listening to this out there decide to go into planetary defense because clearly we need a lot of help there. Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff happening in that area right now as far as like, I know a lot of Native American groups that are looking into planetary defense as just, you know, part of their push into space. And also some of our mutual friends at TransAstra have been working on NEO detection for smaller NEOs using like a constellation of off-the-shelf telescopes that have been modified for specifically looking at asteroids. So yeah, a lot of really fun stuff going on right there. Asteroid and meteorites are just super cool. I got to check out the meteorite lab at Johnson a couple of weeks ago. They kind of talked us through how so many meteorites get found. And a lot of them are in Antarctica and in like in big deserts, because it's kind of like you look over the plains and anything that's like just a black dot is not sand or ice is probably a meteorite, right? Because it it had had to fall there, right? Yeah. So yeah, it was. it's just really cool to think how often these small bodies are falling to earth and we just don't even, don't see it, don't hear mm-hmm. about it, you know? But yeah, when it does happen and you can see it, it's a, yeah, it's a little bit like a don't look up, a little, a little terrifying yeah, for sure. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Speaking of all these movies out there kind of uh, foreshadowing real life events, we should clarify too that this particular fireball was completely harmless. There were no injuries as a result of this. But if you're interested in asteroids and planetary defense, you can also check out, I believe it was episode one of this season four of Celestial Citizen podcast with Dr. Martin Elvis. We had a really fascinating conversation about asteroids. At this point, we're about halfway through the the headlines we want to cover today. So I'll also give an opportunity to hear a little bit from one of our sponsors this year. We are currently witnessing the birth of a robust, sustainable economy within cislunar space. What is cislunar space? Well, it's the part of space that ranges from low Earth orbit out to geostationary orbit and then beyond toward the moon's surface. This cislunar economy will involve a much more interconnected paradigm for space development. For a snapshot and user guide to the players and opportunities ahead, New Space Global, a multiverse media property, has produced a report titled Cislunar Market Opportunities. To get your copy, please go to cislunar.report and use coupon code CITIZEN10 for 10% off a single user license. Thank you again to Multiverse Media for sponsoring Celestial Citizen this year. 
Now, back to the show. So yes, SpaceX recently had a static fire. It was very exciting. If you haven't seen the pictures of it, it's just rocket launches and static fires are just so fun to watch. And uh, we're very excited. I think the whole community is excited to see Starship launch, see it you know, really happen, you know, explore the launch capabilities. Uh, obviously, our parent company, Blue Origin, is making their own heavy lift launcher. And we think there's going to be a lot of room for everybody to play in that space. In fact, there's, there are a lot of rocket companies that are coming out right now, but very few rockets are going to have the kind of capabilities that like New Glenn is going to have. But getting back to the SpaceX launch, what was really striking and interesting to me is like, if you get into rocket design, like if you kind of nerd out about rockets, then one of the things that I've been struck by with this particular design from SpaceX is how close it is in some ways, not in all ways, but in some ways to the USSR's in one rocket that was supposed to be the competitor to the Saturn V. And if you've seen that TV show for all mankind. Have I seen it, Hunter? <laughs> just, I think the real question is, Hunter, clearly you have not seen no, Bailey just, and I's reaction I'm videos. I'm just playing. I know, I know that's what you guys do. Yeah. So if you join our community of watchers, yeah. by the way, plug for that. Plug for that. We've got a great community of for all mankind watchers, so oh, yeah. you can uh, check that out on YouTube. It's a lot of know. fun. The, comment, the reaction add your comments. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, we're getting way off topic, but I will say, like that community is so active and engaged. I absolutely love it. Like Bailey and I live for the comments and the fan theories that come out on those videos. So that's awesome. Anyway, so all right. So going back to this rocket, they don't get into it too much in that show. But the big what if is what if mm-hmm. they had not had some of the engines in the N1 fail and it had made it to the moon. That would have been the thing that changes everything, right? With Starship, I mean, specifically with the static launch, right? They have Mm -hmm. 33 instead of the N1's 30 and they are using a different fuel. So it's a very different ship for a lot of reasons, but the number of engines is similar. So if Starship can get all of these engines firing and get it all working, then they may be able to surpass where the USSR was at in the 60s. I know that's like the goal, but for me, that's the benchmark. Can you do better than the N1? And if you can do better than the N1, then you likely have the engineering skills and risk tolerance stack up is similar to at least as good as the Saturn V. So it's very exciting to me to see this because it gives me a lot of hope that like we are entering the future where these super heavy lift rockets are going to be a reality and it's going to happen like soon. Yeah. What is the timeline that you're thinking? You know, obviously Elon makes timelines and then they tend to be like very aggressive. But in your mind, what is like a realistic timeline for when Starship is going to be truly viable? I can't talk about New Glenn too much, but I, I can't yeah. say there's a lot of exciting stuff going on at the uh, facility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We got to be careful here. Exactly. But you can talk about SpaceX. Exactly. Can, uh, that's that's why. Know, that's why. I, uh, some educated conjecture. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's why I picked this article. I'm like, I can talk about SpaceX all day. So, yeah, it seems like from this that that's is very good. So I'm thinking this flies within five years, possibly, which as far as Elon Musk's timeline is a a little bit farther away than he would hope, obviously. But in the grand scheme of things, considering how long it took 
freaking SLS to fly. It's doing okay. Yeah. Doing okay. No, it's interesting. And I'm just trying to think about that. So like five years. And then what do you think will be the cadence of launches for Starship? How often do you think it's going to launch? The goal is not human rated ever for this first model of Starship. Like that's one thing that SpaceX does pretty well is like separating out the human rated versus the not human rated rockets. The one that's going to have a very frequent launch cadence is going to be a version of Starship that is not rated for human launch okay. so that they can have a lower requirements for testing and, you know, further checkout and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, my hope is that SpaceX is not just doing Starship for human space flight, that they are going to do cargo and that it's going to be a very rapid turnaround and like almost continuous cadence of like several launches per year. Mm-hmm. So very different from SLS, which who knows how often SLS is going to launch. Who knows indeed. <laughs> well, and then switching over to the Dear Moon, and this wasn't really on our slate of things to talk about, but I'm just curious what you think the timeline for the Dear Moon mission is actually going to be. Because aren't they saying that that's going to take place like next year? I mean, this one article I'm looking at says it's going to take off in 2023. Lies and mendacity. There's no possible way. Like, you know, if they do it, great. I will eat my words. But (laughs) I think that is a crazy timeline. And they better not blow up because if they kill Steve Alkey and (laughs) T.O.P. from Big Bang, I'm going to be so upset. You know, like that is a terrible loss to humanity. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Well, The space industry is nothing if not known for setting timelines that it is unable to keep. It's what we love most about the space industry. Absolutely. Have you (laughs) you ever heard the concept of space chicken? No. Okay. You know, like chicken with cars, like when you're racing towards each other. Oh, yeah. So like not chicken you eat. Not chicken you eat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Mm -hmm. every launch, every single launch has something called space chicken going on which is where nobody wants to be the one to cause launch delay because then you look like a jerk, right? So you are actively playing space chicken with everybody else on the launch to make sure that like somebody else is the one that causes it to push and not you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. It's real. I mean, it's real. Yeah. Like when, now that you say it, I'm like, yeah, that's real. You know, the space industry, it's an interesting place. It's an interesting place. Come join us, folks, if you're listening. But all right, let's move on. And actually, before we move on, we can hear from one of our other sponsors this year for Celestial Citizen and Continuum. This episode of Celestial Citizen Podcast is in part sponsored by the Colorado School of Mines Space Resources Program. This first-of-its-kind interdisciplinary program offers certificate, master of science, and PhD degrees for professionals around the world interested in the emerging field of extraterrestrial resources. The program focuses on developing core knowledge and design practices for effective and responsible identification, extraction, and use of resources in the solar system to enhance space exploration and enable the new space economy. To learn more about the MINE Space Resources Program, educational opportunities, and research activities, check out its webpage at space.mines.edu. Thank you again to the Colorado School of Mines Space Resources Program for your sponsorship this year. 
Hunter, we are kind of getting a little bit tight on time. Do we want to just jump to the UFOs? Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's talk about UFOs <laughs> or UOs as they've been called recently. They're unidentified objects. They're not flying. I mean, they are flying, but they're not being called flying. <laughs> I mean, if they're in the sky, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, what is this like? Are we, I mean, I don't even understand. Do you think it's just because they don't want to say UFOs? Absolutely. 100% yes. Which is interesting because now I feel like this also is changing the way people are thinking about you, or maybe it's not. That's the thing is because I do worry a little bit talking about space communication here for a second. The way that this has been handled by the U.S. government, by the media, there's not been a lot of details given, which I think is probably on the interwebs, right? Like leading to people sort of panicking, thinking that there's going to be an alien invasion that's going to take place. And it's like, it's understandable because they're saying we don't have answers. They're unidentified flying objects. Multiple ones have come in a short span of time. Now to debunk this a little bit though, some of that could be related to the fact that after we discovered the Chinese spy balloon, it's my understanding that then NORAD sort of changed the way that they were looking or potentially observing for things out there. And so it could be that we just sort of changed filters or the parameters, which now allows us to see more than we had previously, but that these sorts of things had always been there. Hunter, is that your understanding as well, that this could simply just be a, a different data filter that's allowing this to seem more frequent? Absolutely. And actually, there's a couple of really funny things about this. So Just a couple? Oh, <laughs> Specifically this part of it, right? So if you guys remember Travis Barker of yes. too, right? Yeah. He got yeah. super into mm-hmm. UFOs and... Or wait, no, not Travis Barker. Wait, no, no, no. Sorry. We're now spreading fake news. Travis Barker is like with Kourtney Kardashian. He's oh, the drummer. He's, oh, wait, no, no. Who is it? Who's the one with who's into UFOs? Hold on. <laughs> yeah. We wrote about it in Continuum Newsletter, so I should know this guy's name right now. And I don't know why I'm blanking. Tom DeLonge. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So sorry, Travis Hunter's Barker. Like, yeah, Travis As Barker. As we all know, Travis and Barker. And Kourtney Kardashian. They're on it. Okay. And if the Kardashian money is on it, all right, we're gonna fi- uh, we're gonna find some aliens in this decade. That's so bad. Yeah. Okay. Just sorry. Kidding. Shout out to Travis totally Barker. Good. But so Tom DeLong has been looking at this for a while. Got super into it. Even had some interactions with Bigelow. But what they found, and I think it was the Navy confirmed that they are UFOs, but they are not alien. Also, recently it came out that multiple of these balloons, these specifically these like Chinese balloons, were spotted during the Trump administration, but it was not released to the public that they had been spotted. This particular balloon, though, I think it may have been flying low enough that people could just see it. And so... <laughs> It was like very uh, concerning for like your average farmer who's just looking up being like, well, that does not look right. <laughs> oh my so God. yeah, crazy yeah. times. But the, uh, the funny thing about all this is that I tend to tell people wherever I go, if I'm in a car and talking to an Uber driver or something, I like to talk to them about what I do and their interest in space and just get kind of a pulse on the general public and, and where they're thinking. Because I use my LinkedIn as a science communicator type of platform. And I like to, you know, Talking to you is great, Britt, because I know you do the same thing with this podcast. But yeah, so often, so, so often when I'm talking to people in the public, they will say things to me like, oh, you work for NASA. And I'll be like, well, not exactly, but yeah. And they'll be like, really cool stuff you guys have done with discovering the multiverse. And I'll be like, what? No, that is Dr. Strange. Really good job containing the protomolecule. Yeah. (laughs) 
exactly. It's stuff like it's stuff like that. And I'll be like expands reference people. Yes. I will always be like, you know, I'll, I'll be gentle about it, but I gotta, I have to be like, you know, oh, you know, that's not really what we're doing right now. And then I try to bring it back to real stuff. But the greater science community, the greater space community in particular, has really got an uphill battle with getting people to understand what, what we do and separate it from science fiction. So, like, a lot of people talk to me yeah. about aliens, UFOs, like they'll lean in and they'll be like, tell me the truth. Does NASA know about UFOs? Does NASA know about aliens? <laughs> and <I'll> be- <laughs> <laughs> so yeah which like for the record i believe there's life out there sure yeah okay i don't know exactly what kind of life we're talking about i don't know exactly where it is but i absolutely believe we're not alone in the universe all right now do i think that in the time span of the last eight days we've been visited three or four times like no i don't believe that i think it these are human made objects but i i will say that i can understand people's interest in particularly alien life, because I think there's just like a very deep down desire for us not to be alone. I don't know. Some people are terrified by the idea that we're not alone. I personally, I think would find it comforting perhaps. I don't know. I don't like the idea that we're all alone. That feels very sad to me anyway. But yeah, I mean, you're right. These are important topics that I think the space community, the science community gets right in the way that we communicate these things. Similarly, though, when I try to tell people that I have a master's degree in space resources, they are incredibly confused. And they're like, yeah, but like, we're not actually going to live off the land in space. Like, that's sci-fi, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's the interesting thing is that sometimes the things that are science fiction people believe, Mm -hmm. sometimes the things that are actually real and potentially viable, people are like, no way. Absolutely. I'm not falling for that. It is fascinating to me that the same person who will be like, aliens are real and have been here and did abduct my uncle will also be like, you guys want to drink water out of moon ice? No way. Crazy town. Yeah. Or even like the fact that, I mean, we get this all the time at Celestial Citizen. People will sometimes be really mad because they're like, why are you tricking people into thinking the earth is round? (laughs) And Oh, Oh, no. So, you know, you got to be careful sometimes. I mean, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Absolutely. Check your sources, people. (laughs) All right. So I think that brings us to a close on the news stories that we're going to cover on this episode. But I don't know if you've listened to the prior two episodes that I've done with AJ Link, who co-hosted with us for the first two episodes. But towards the end here, we, we have a little fun with chat GPT, mostly because I just find it hilarious to play around with this. I wanted to write a short synopsis of an alternate history in which Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos never pursued space exploration. What would the space industry be like today? I have to say it was a pretty disappointing answer. Um, you know... <laughs> Chat GPT is clearly in the camp that really believes we couldn't have done it without Jeff or Elon, which is interesting. They then said, well, okay, would other business leaders have emerged instead in this alternate history? You know, they were basically like, well, I mean, it's possible, but like, (laughs) you know, ultimately hard to say because they've done so much for the industry and brought so much visibility to it, whatever else. Then the inner feminist in me was like, you know what? why don't we add in this extra layer in the prompt and ask it for an alternate history in which the business leaders are exclusively women? And what would the space industry be like today? And Hunter, do you know what it said? (laughs) You might be a little scared by this. Talk to me. 
It was like, well, you know, it means along the same lines. It's like, oh, it, it's difficult to say because, you know, Elon and Jeff have done so much. But then it said that women business leaders would have made the space industry different in mainly three ways. They would make it more eco-friendly, more inclusive, and more collaborative. And I said, okay, these are all great things, by the way. I'm not trying to say these are not great things. I just find it very interesting that those are the things that then ChatGPT prompted me. So then I go another layer deep and I'm like, okay, okay, but would women business leaders have created reusable rockets and perhaps rockets even more successful than those of Elon Musk and SpaceX? And it's like, yeah, it's impossible, right? You know, and it's going through this and it's saying uh, it's also worth noting that the business strategy and execution behind this really was pretty critical. So basically, I like continue going down this hole with ChatGPT. But the interesting thing is then I add another layer and I say, okay, well, let's assume all the business leaders have advanced degrees in physics and engineering. What technological feats would have been achieved for the industry? And then they do actually start listing out, you know, faster, more efficient propulsion, advanced space habitats, advanced robotics, advanced materials, which is great. But basically, they also add in some line where they're like, but it's hard to know what they would have achieved had they had a similar background with Elon and Jeff. And I'm like, I don't think either of them has an advanced degree in physics or engineering, unless I'm mistaken. Certainly not Elon, right? He's always credited with being self-taught, I believe. So it just, it completely goes down this interesting kind of way. And then eventually the moral of the story is it ends in like a circular loop where then like in the, I keep prompting it and eventually it just goes back to, yes, but women are good at sustainability, diversity, and inclusion. Mm. Um, <laughs> and I was like, wow, wow, chat GPT. Chat GPT. This is, this is fascinating. Really betraying some bias here, right? Right. And also take the whole, you know, feminist angle out of it for a second. Just in general, I hate the narrative that we are relying on like two people in an industry of how many to really like be the guiding light and the force for change, force for innovation. I don't think any of these successes can be attributed to just, you know, one or two people. I mean, obviously it's built by teams and I think that's a disservice to the space industry. So ChatGPT, get it together. Absolutely. And you know what else, ChatGPT, what you might not know is that SpaceX is actually run by Gwen Shotwell and that <laughs> yeah. Elon Musk doesn't do anything, dude. Like, <laughs> like, it is a woman who is running SpaceX. You know what? Okay, this is live, folks, okay? I'm going to prompt ChatGPT, name more than one successful business leader. Hold on, I'm typing out there. That happens to be a woman in the space industry. Let's see what ChatGPT comes up with. I can beat ChatGBQ if it can, because I can think of three right off the top of my head. Okay, hold on. Don't say them yet. Or actually, it doesn't matter. I can't control this thing. <laughs> All right. Oh, this is too much. Oh, my God. You're going to die. Okay. You go ahead and name your three, and then I'll tell you what ChatGBT came up with. Okay. So I'm just going to name three women who are important in space that I know off the top of my head. So we have Gwen, who I mentioned. Then we also have... Carol Craig of Craig Industries in Cape Canaveral. It's not a huge, uh, well-known company, but very successful, and she's done a lot. And then, you know, even if you're thinking about the original people who were doing spaceflight, like Valentina Tereshkova is a 
perhaps not a good person because she is serving the Russian government now as a member of the Duma. I think she's like the oldest member of the Duma now, but she was the first woman in space and she has continued to work with the Russian space program. So like, absolutely, there have been women movers and shakers for good and bad in the space world for, you know, decades and decades. So chat GPT, please get it together. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you're going to die. This is hilarious. Okay. Chat GPT. First one, not surprising. Gwyn Shotwell. Okay. okay. Number one. All right. Agree. Number two, Tori Bruno. <laughs> Tori <laughs> Bruno, for one. those... <laughs> For those that don't know, it's not a woman. <laughs> <laughs> That's raw chat, GBT. Literally, this is so inaccurate. Like, I can't even believe this. It says, and it goes into detail. It says, Tori Bruno, she is the CEO of United Launch Alliance. <laughs> and like, goes into this. Bruno has been recognized for her leadership in space industry and her efforts to promote diversity and inclusion. Maybe that's true. Maybe Tori Bruno has been recognized. I I don't know. Certainly, but I can definitely, but I can definitely tell you that Tori Bruno should not be number two on the list of most successful women in space. God, I can think of like Marilyn Houston from Lockheed Martin. She was the president and CEO of Lockheed. A lot of these women who absolutely have impacted the future of space are so often not recognized at all. And it's whack. Absolutely. Well, anyway, this will continue. People know I, I really like to uh, test the bounds of ChatGPT. All right, Hunter, I know you got to go. Thanks so much for your time here today. I'll spare you uh, on my outro here. But yeah, appreciate the conversation and we'll be excited to have you back. Yeah, love talking with you, Britt. A lot of fun. I'll see you soon. And as a reminder, if you want to check out our original features, head to our website, www.continuum-hq.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at continuum.hq and Twitter at continuum underscore HQ. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And by subscribe, we mean hopefully becoming a paid subscriber. We appreciate your support so that you can stay up to date with what's going on in space. And of course, subscribe to our Continuum newsletter on Substack for curated space news content. Tune in two weeks from now to keep up to date with all the cool stuff happening up in that big, beautiful cosmos we're all floating around in. Continuum, one giant leap every other week.